0: G'day, here at The Regenerative Journey, part of our goal is to educate our followers on the benefits of knowing where their food comes from, and the knock-on effects this can have on our health, our environment, and our future generations. Understanding the connection has never been more important, and in the spirit of this endeavour, we have teamed up with Highland Beef Pastoral Company, a grass-fed beef supply chain servicing the growing US grass-fed consumer market, who I'm excited to announce are our season six show sponsors. Essentially, this Australian-based business places cattle on their member graziers' properties, at no expense to the farmer, and provides competitive returns for every kilo of beef produced, allowing their graziers to focus on improving their businesses in a capital-free and risk-free environment. Highland beef graziers are some of the best grass and animal managers in the country, livestock are humanely and lovingly cared for while on their farms, and customers are guaranteed a very high-quality, regeneratively managed, grass-fed and finished product, with full transparency from farm to plate. If you're interested in finding out more about this program, visit hbpastoral.com.au forward slash Charlie Arnott.
1: People are often really detached from the natural world and in the last, I don't know, however how many decades, people seem to attach to the natural world through their food system and, uh, you know, you look at that when you, on menus, the... the you know, exacting specificity of where something's from, the variety it is, where it was grown, how it was grown. People crave that sort of connection to the natural world through food and I think it's an extension of that.
2: That was Jason Cotter and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey.
0: G'day and welcome back to the Regenerative Journey. Uh, I find myself sitting in our loft here at Hannah Minnow, overlooking our beautiful dam. You may uh, hear some geese in the background. Um, I've got the door shut. It is a bit windy outside. It is. It is a f- crazy se- season. I've got to say, um, we're in summer. This is. This has been recorded sort from of mid mid. yeah, oh, you know, third week of December, and. Um, you know, you'd be expecting some pretty hot days in the 30s at least, but we're sort of in the low 20s and we have, you know, pretty much um, for the for the season, for summer, for December so far, a bit cray-cray, um, not complaining. You know, comes with its own challenges, of, as I've talked about before, uh, just in terms of, you know, seasonality and where the plants are up to. My God, the flowers, the gum trees, especially our, my favourite grandmother, um... Grandmother tree just behind the the house here, a beautiful yellow box tree, um, just in full flower, um, just incredible, just an amazing um, natural occurrence. And the beauty and the power of nature is on full display. Um, I'll post a video on that at some point. Um, now this, I'm just going to make them quick because um, everyone's crawling, limping. I suspect to the end of the year. Don't want to, don't need or want to rab- hear me rabbiting on too much, um, leading into these interviews. Well, I hope you know if you're walking, if you're in in, in David Jones doing your Christmas shopping, uh, just pop these on. Don't oh, and just a quick one. And this is not, yeah, this is just something i have been doing some homework on. Um, if you. Can you avoid listening to me in, with earbuds? I don't want that to stop you from listening, but um, the more I read and see about earbuds, those, you know, Bluetooth, I think they're Bluetooth sort of set up. No, they're cordless. Oh, my God, not good. But anyway, yours, um, uh, you know, your decision <laughs> your decision to make. I actually use AirTubes. That's um, yeah, actually the brand, AirTubes. Google them. They're fantastic um, whenever I'm listening to stuff with a, you know, in, in, direct into my ears. Yeah. Um, So, Jason Cotter, he's our next guest on the regenerative journey. I've known Jason for a few years now, um, primarily for his exploration and, and expertise in the um, dare I say, ancient grains, the alum, wheats, and so on, uh, growing in a very, I, I believe, I feel, a very unlikely sp- uh, spot down the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. Um, I don't know if it was certainly not now known for its grape, uh, sorry, its um, wheat growing sort of, um, uh, you know, notoriety. However, uh, a lot more grapes and probably a few cows and that sort of thing at the moment, and tourists, uh, the growing tourists down there. Um he is on his um on his family farm where his father's been growing grapes for some time and making making or selling the selling the grapes at least. Jason's been experimenting over a number of years with different varieties of wheat. Um and getting them from all over the world, all above all board. I'm sure he's not sneaking them in in the soles of his feet or anything like that, um, and doing some amazing work with um, uh, genetics and crossbreeding and just growing and just sort of um, – well, actually, hold back. I don't know about crossbreeding. I don't think about the crossbreeding bit, but certainly in, in terms of just, just, you know, selection of ones that he feels is, you know, um, appropriate for his climate and so on. And anyway growing and, and developing because you, you might get a bag of the stuff and then obviously over a few years you can, through growing um, every year and harvesting, you can build up the numbers. So he's selling it all over the place. Um, he's making amazing bread. Um, so this is what I knew him for. And then sitting down with him there some um, some weeks ago now Um just the rest of his life. It was incredible, really. I mean, he's only a young fella, only a young buck is, uh, is uh, Jason, uh, but he's crammed a lot in, um, you know, he's a copywriter. He's done some work with um, Indigenous communities in Central Australia, some beautiful, amazing work there, and, um, and sort of just really good. Just really enjoyed this yarn for its sort of, I guess, spontaneity in the way that I didn't know much about Jason. I never do a whole lot of homework for that very reason, just so we can sort of dance with the conversation. But this one went to places I just didn't didn't have a clue. It was fascinating stuff, and really enjoyed um, my sit down there with uh, with Jason. Um, Turong Farm is the is the um, is where it all happens down there in the um, in Victoria in the Mornington Peninsula, and. Um, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Jason. It was quite, it was sort of punctuated in the middle there by um, a delivery truck turning up. Um, <laughs> it was very funny. We are all set up there outside his, his bakery and where he does his milling and so on. And um, in the shed at the farm and then, you know, old mate turns up just totally oblivious to the fact there's two people with headphones on, you know, with microphones clearly in front of them. Um, (laughs) Just as a classic. Anyway, we got through that. We did have to have a a little bit of a break um, between dealing with that uh, and then we we sailed on. But you, I'm not sure where you'll pick up that um, potentially seamless break or Reese Reese might have popped something in the middle of it. But, look, I really hope you enjoy um, this interview uh, on the regenerative journey uh, with Jason Cotter. (laughs) <laughs> it just looks a bit, a bit of a rough nut. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Hence the hat stays on. Yes. Well, Jason, you're yes. busted because we're, we're away. Yeah, we're, we're away. Ten, we're 10 okay. seconds in. Okay. Oh, um, Just don't be alarmed if I reach across mm, to grab sure. your microphone yeah, there. no worries. Yeah. Um, Mate, we're on the. We're, welcome to the regenerative journey, Thank you. and welcome to um, Turong Farm, your farm and your bakery. Your your, your old it. shed, but a new bakery. Is
1: that, yeah, is that How we explain it? We've uh, the mill's now got uh, a bakery next to it and overlooking the farm, and um, yeah, we've probably opened six weeks ago, and um, it's going well. Bread's beautiful, It's grown, milled, and baked here, and um, yeah, we're we're uh, on the way.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're looking across um, your paddocks. There's a lovely big dam. That's your dam there, yeah? Yeah. That's yeah. a massive dam. Um, uh, and we, we, you mentioned there's a few, which you might explain in a second. Yep. We've got some cattle down there. Are they black or are they redy black?
1: They're composites. Yeah. Composites. F- um, from, uh, well, originally well, they're bred here, but... Uh, from Hicks Beef in Holbrook. there. Uh, <sighs> deliberate composites, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, for good figures, yeah, good carcass, that, that kind of thing. We're getting into them. Then the few composites, blue E, Johnny Wright. Oh yeah, Hodge yeah, yeah. Low um, low methane wines, is that it? Or
0: uh, I possibly. It. I couldn't give a shit about yeah, that, that low methane, to be honest. Oh okay, well, it's a lot yeah, of, boll- of
1: bollocks. The blue E's, I don't, I don't think they burp as much. <laughs> yet, so, <I>
0: think, <laughs> well, um... they got a good feed conversion. I think is okay. the um, is one of the things there. So there you go. Pick that like a dirty nose, and then a part further, and we've got some grapes.
1: Yeah, yep. It's um, yeah, some Pinot Noir, some Chardonnay. Pinot Gris. There is some Sauvignon Blanc, but we're going to swap that over to a, a cultivar. Our, our neighbours, uh, Yoby Lake, take the grapes here. And um, and then further afield, uh, there's yeah, with the cows and um, a bit of wheat. Your and, storage shed? Yeah. yeah, yeah or uh, your dad's. Well, it's Peter's uh, shed, but I've yeah, slowly colonised the shed um so we probably need a new shed. Does he have? Does he know you've got plans to move him out of there totally? Oh, look, he's, I think the writing's on the wall there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he does. yeah. You might want to give him his number and I can break oh, it to him so sort of gently. Yeah, you know, he's, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great relationship that has its oscillations. Yeah. <laughs>
0: like anything in life.
1: Yeah. Um, talking about
0: grapes, so Yabby Lake, I know yeah. that uh, in 2000, and I'm thinking it was 16 or 17, they won the best Champion wine at the Sydney Wine Show for their Pinot Noir. Yep, yeah, they do. Were you part of that? Did you? Were your grapes part of that?
1: Uh, possibly. Yeah, they've uh, they we've got Pinot Noir. They've got Pinot Noir. Um, yeah, the renowned winemaker over there, Tom Carson, and Carso uh, Carson. Yeah. No, but is it Carso to his mates? Oh, well, excuse, I haven't got clock with you yet. <laughs> you have not so got that friendly. Yeah, no, no, we'll have to. Yes, there uh, you go. Well, you know what he says uh, at some point. <laughs> yeah, so. hmm. what does he call you Cotto? Oh, who knows what he calls me. <laughs> in privacy, his not home. But they're um, no, no, we're, um, good neighbours and it's been a longstanding relationship. Because they're this way, aren't they? This
0: yeah. to just to the whatever direction that is. Is that west? Yeah. No, east, sorry, east? This way.
1: Uh, that's east. to the west we've got Dramana Estate. Yeah. Uh, a little further over we've got um, Murudaka Estate. Um, oh, yes. Because so we are in the Mornington Peninsula. We, are? we are, yeah. It's um, wine country and we just happen to be... Doing something a bit different than wine here. That uh, um, we're growing weeds as well, so, and rye and a few other bits and pieces. So, um, not something that I uh, started with a, a drawn-up business plan. I just started doing it out of interest and it's sort of grown into something um, that feeds into the local um, grain economy or yeah. local localised food systems, that kind of thing. Well, you, you probably created the grain economy.
0: We, we're going to get back to all of that. Um, yep. So here we are, set the scene, beautiful part of the world. Uh, we've just done a two-day introduction to biodynamics workshop um, up the road at Uncommon Folk yep. um, on Main Creek Road and uh, love people there have sort of had us there for the two days. You you joined us there. Um, I'll get back to that. But um, why here? Why Mornington Peninsula? Why Toorong Farm? What are you? How did you get here?
1: Uh, look, my family's been on the peninsula a long time. Um, my father's family were farmers uh, probably about a K from here as the crow flies over the back. Um, sheep and beef and dairy at some point. Um, and uh, my family's in the food industry um, since the the eighties. Um, just mainly industrial food ingredients, uh, importing, exporting that kind of thing. Any any and any brands
0: we know, or any kind of any any hints at what that was? Yeah,
1: yeah. Everything from cocoa to uh, freeze dried prawns to um, smoked mushrooms that were collected all over chimneys in South America and. Uh, coyotes uh, pulled them all together and my um, well, folks bought them and then sold them into um, uh, China and uh, Korea for soups and things like that. So there, oh. it was sort of like a... Be entrepreneurial? Yeah, yep, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, I guess we were interested in the, the global end of um, food and uh, they sold that business in um, the early 90s and... Um, as part of that, bought this place, and um, you know we had beef and grapes here, and we had a winery for a while as well. And um, you know I had some interest in that, but I, I guess I was pursuing my own career and other other paths. And I just started uh, growing wheat um, as something in the background, and it soon took over. Yeah. And um, so let's
0: go back, and it's a beautiful part of the world. Are you happy to be here? Yeah, peninsula. Well, maybe great. not right now. You
1: might not be happy for me to me to be right here. Yeah, there, no, no, but no, it's wonderful. In terms of living
0: here, <laughs>
1: I, I, look, the peninsula has got a lot going for it. You know, you're just it's, less than an hour from the city. You got the beaches. Um, the it's got small smaller landholdings, so um, you know, there's beef and and grapes are the the key thing down here agriculturally. But there's also tourism and I guess that farm gate style. Um, Of operation, and the benefit for us is we can tap into the populations that's here, but also into Melbourne, um, and do something a bit different that's uh, higher value with a shorter supply chain and that kind of thing. So, being on the peninsula, we've responded to where we are rather than um, um, you know trying to build a. A commodity farm, so we're doing what works here by value, adding value, and what
0: have you. I'll get back to it because yeah. I want to try and keep some structure to this interview. Sorry, no, Ma, all... keep no, steering, no, no, steering it's you on not you; it's me here. not facilitating. Very well. And not that there needs to be a structure, but yeah. I, I'm just curious. Absolutely, um, I'm going to get back to um, what you've just said there about you sort of working with what you've got and where you are, which is great. Yeah. Um, I need some little. Um, I'll just put an asterisk on my notes and hopefully I'll remember what that asterisk actually means. Yep. Tell me, um, Jason, so where do you want to start? This is about your journey, your regenerative journey somewhat, and um, do you want to day one, where was little Jason Cotter? Where did you, where did you see your first uh, ray of sunshine?
1: Yeah, well, I grew up, where, where I grew up, you mean? Or Yeah. Yeah, uh, in Langwarren, actually, so t- 20 minutes from here, sort of between... Cranburn and, uh, Frankston. Um, so yeah, spent a lot of my time on the peninsula. Um, yeah, went to school locally, what have you. Were
0: you on a few acres or were
2: you in an yeah, urban yeah, situation? Yeah, yeah. Few acres, I think yeah.
1: from, yeah, I guess the time I was 10 and then I think maybe bought this place when I was like 15 or 16. Um, and never thought of, uh, that I'd be moving into agriculture. I uh, was very interested in it, but, uh, you know, pursued other things. And then... So your family moved here?
0: That was your new... new.
1: Uh, new no, we're, I'm the only one that's ever lived here, actually. So my f- folks uh, now live in Mornington, but they lived in Langwarren for a long time. Um, my sister's moved to Mornington as well now. Um, but in terms of here, uh, we fixed the house up about... Uh, eight or nine years ago and um um although i was living in it at the time but now it's a much nice place to live and um yes yeah, so i have a young family here I live here with emma and um the kids and um yeah we've i guess we made a go of it with um the crops and the, the cattle and the accommodation and what have you and um yeah it's it's I an mean, amazing place to live really so very fortunate we've, Ten minutes from the beach, and um, so yeah, I, you know,
0: was it? Was it a um, when when you when you moved here when you were young? Was it? Um, did you resist? Did you go? I'm just going to give this. I mean, did you feel like a farmer or like? Uh, no, sorry? not at all.
1: Like, uh, it's only really I've taken farming um, seriously, and, and our I mean, key income, I guess, in the last probably six or seven years. Um, Prior to that, um, I had a a business, a writing business, and I still do. Writing? Yeah, so, you know, I've written various things over the years, but um, our main uh, vein of income from there has been writing tenders for the construction industry, so I have a a small team of writers now that um, that I'm an agent for, so we work on large um, infrastructure projects and... um, that was great, and I was doing that for quite a while, but then um, I just, every time I said yes to a job, I was like, oh, I don't want to be doing this. And then you know, I was pursuing some agricultural things in the background and then, the, you know, I guess all my interest was there, so I've, I've slowly pursued that more and more to the point where it, it takes all my time. So This takes all your time right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So just rewinding a little, um Parents bought the farm. Yep. Uh, you were you weren't living here then. You, you went no, no, you, wasn't living
1: here then. You were living um, still. Yeah, in town. Yeah, um, and we We're working in town. Yeah, absolutely. Um, came back here and what? What, what age did you? Oh, you, you what, so
0: you finished, school. What, what, yeah, what finished sort of, school. what sort of kid were you? Well, pursued other. No, don't, don't ignore the. Oh, critical question. pretty
1: quiet. Probably, and then got to. I uh, went to university and. Yeah, loose, I guess, as you, as you do. What did you do at uni? Um, well, I started doing forest science, science, uh, forest the, science, yeah, and, and science, a du- double degree, and then I think the second or third year. So the science part of it was mainly geology. I had to move out to the forestry school at Creswick, and I just moved from uh, you know down this way to the city, and uh, I was pretty happy to stay in the city. So I, where's Creswick? You know, where's that? It's, it's out near. Ballarat between Ballarat and Dalesford. so I mean, lovely country, and mm. um, and but yeah, was keen to stay in town and um, you know pursue all the things you do in the city. And um, <laughs> as a young student, that's right. And um, <laughs> so,
0: so you had to go out there as part of the part of the call.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I ended up um, yeah, deferring university in my third year, and I went back and um, I did a, a, a creative arts degree in the end and. The, the mainstream of that was writing and off the back of that I, you know, published things in the paper and, you know, various magazines and what have you. I've only, what, what topics? Oh, all sorts of things. So, um, uh, you know, uh, everything from ruined piano sanctuaries to... how um, ruined piano... Sanctuaries. Yeah. Oh, all right. right. Yeah. To, to travelling through Tajikistan to... So, yeah. so these these were
0: um, from your experiences, like you, yeah, yep, yep. Travel so, and then wrote, and then they went. That's yeah, it, that, yeah. That's all so,
1: right. uh, subsequent to that, that kind of you're an uh, early blogger. Oh, it wasn't blogging; it was broadsheet newspapers mm-hmm. uh, in the you know Saturday features. But so prior to blogging, I guess. Um, and then oh, I guess subsequent to that i I worked as um, a copywriter um, as for a travel company so i 'd write a lot of things from Lonsdale Street but um, I was also um, occasionally would travel so I went through Central Asia and did a few things like that that i'd write about before they well um, while they were developing trips i'd go um, with someone and um, uh, look at the area and uh, work out a trip from, you know, A to B and I would write about that and help with the promotion, that kind of thing. And I, uh, for what it, it sounds fantastic, but it, some parts were great, but really um, around that point I, I wanted to... Um, I had a hole I needed to fill with cash, basically. So I, I started writing tenders for the construction industry, and um, it's quite a quite a pivot, I guess.
0: isn't it? Yeah, it is. Did, you, did you inject some creative creativity that hadn't been seen before <laughs> oh, in the construction? industry? Yeah, yeah no. you go, wow. Yeah, no. well,
1: look, a lot no, of seriously it's, was that was that of yeah. like, like
0: being able to do that? Was that was no, that, no? Was that you, you
1: can't um, you can't make stuff up. You can certainly embellish. Uh, well, you can't even do that. But you can. Um, it's, interview an architect or an engineer who may not be able to get the words on the page and then come up with something that's succinct and expresses how they're going to build something and who's going to build it and um how well they're going to work together and what have you and to come up with something that the the government likes to look of and then they award the tender to that uh consortium or business or what have you so i was doing that for a while and um yeah, ultimately it wasn't where I wanted to be. So yeah. back to the forest science. Science yeah. it was forest
0: science. Yeah. What is that? What what that, when you're a forest forest science student, what are you
1: learning? You're working out sounds fascinating uh, how to grow and cut down trees, and how to do the maths around uh, how many trees you've got, what they're worth, and uh, so how to feed them into the forestry industry. Yeah. So I guess these days. forestry has a strong sustainability focus and, um, you know, depending on the political moods of various states, it uh, it pretty much governs the fortunes of forestry and so I think at the moment we're going through a a period where forestry's in decline locally but it's just going to push it offshore into less sustainable uh, forestry coops but, um, you know, you can say that about fisheries and a bunch of other things, I guess, but... um, uh, but at the time, yeah, it was about both plantation forestry and um, sustainably managing native forests, uh, which you know, there were various opinions on. And um, um, at the moment, I'd say in Victoria, it's it's dead. Yeah, it's, it's the forestry dead. industry dead. Oh, look, it seems to be on the way out. They're going to close it. Um, the mills. And, um, you know, of course, there's huge demand for plantation timber, but um, I don't know, well... Yeah. Is that a
0: good, is that, is that, well, how do I ask that question? Is it, I know there's a big demand for timber, so, you know, obviously timber doesn't grow overnight, so, you know, for people to be encouraged to put timber in now, what's what's your view on farm forestry
1: then? Oh, look, there's amazing work down there, sort of agroforestry things, and sure, put put some timber in and... um, yeah, I, that's my view of farm forestry. I think you should have some farm forestry growing and you can even do it in a way where you it's part of your, uh, I guess, regeneration of landscapes or if you're protecting your riparian zones by fencing them off and revegetating and doing all that sort of conservation work, you can also put in some species that you'll cut down at some point and utilise. So, yeah, I mean, I'm all for farm forestry. You can you know, do shelter belts coppice them. The same much benefit to forestry for your pasture and production beyond the trees. So, you know, increasing the temperature, um, you know, improving lambing and things like that. Um, and also moisture retention and, and a lot of things eliminating, well, not eliminating, but reducing evaporation. So there's a lot of things around um, agroforestry that are beneficial. Just, I'm talking about something I've, I've, you know, no expertise in other than an interest, really. So, uh, no,
0: that's yeah. that's good. Yeah. Well, I can just get rid of that out of the interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think it's great. It all no, makes no. Sense. It all makes I've never met anyone who's done uh, yeah. uh, forestry science before. Yeah. Does, was there? Um, was do you think there's been a lot of, or too much, or you know, sort of a, um, yeah, a lot of pressure on the the forestry industry or the timber industry? Look, almost too much that's now pushed it. To a close? Like, are we being overly cautious about, you know, is there a way to, to farm and timber or plant timber and and manage and harvest sustainably where, you know, building materials are produced, landscapes not degraded and may actually be regenerated? You know, is it? Is have is oh. we gone too far the other way now?
1: Yeah, look, it depends who you ask. Um,
0: but but I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, mate. Yeah,
1: if you're asking me, I'd say yes. Um, you know, it's the same with, say, the fisheries in um, Port Phillip, you know, definitely at a certain point, it was unsustainable and it was wrecking a joint, you know, scallop dredging and what have you. But in the last, I don't know, few decades or whatever, it settled into a sustainable fishery. But because of um, various political pressures and you know the realisation there's more money for the state government in recreational fishing than um, a sustainable commercial fishery that they've um, wound it up and, you know, really in Victoria there's Portland and Lakes entrances, commercial fishery ports now. So local the local fisheries defunct and I, I'd say that you could probably extend that to um, um, forestry in that, um, you know, there's w- ways to manage things that um, you can harvest timber and uh, without wrecking the joint um, and... But yeah, there's you know, there's political pressures there as well. Um so the you know, there's a battle on finding people jobs who work in mills now and but also making sure your blood beaters possums and your your parrots and what have you aren't threatened. So, you yeah. know. There's a lot of political forces yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, so. lot, lot, lots lots
0: very involved. Um uh, topic. Um, tell me when you were doing forestry. We'll get we'll get onto the other the sure. the, the annual and the cereal type plants in a minute. But yep. while we're on the timber ones, did you and your forestry science learn much about the interconnectedness of trees in forest and the communications and the you know I don't know fungal highways and hyphae and um, mushrooms and stuff.
1: I don't remember learning that about that then. Um, Certainly, read a bit a bit about it since, and um, yeah, it's fascinating work. Um, yeah, this, I mean, just last season of harvesting, I was listening to a, um, a book by this guy called Merlin uh, Sheldrake ah, yeah. called "Entangled Life" or something like that, and about fungi and its various um, uh, mechanisms and uses, and you know, it's amazing stuff, and then there's there was a bit in that about um, relationships with trees and communicating and passing packets of nutrition and, um, you know, defence systems, something that happens over there, this tree over here will know about it mm-hmm. through those networks. Yeah, that yeah, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. Um, the, the trees, trees also do, like, Kill each other as well. So there is, you know, they do shade each other out. So it's not all holding hands so in, in, Skittles. The, in the forest. Yeah, it's not all kumbaya there's, there. There's, in the yeah, there's definitely some, uh, some uh, um, survival of the uh, Yeah, survival going on there. And um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's undoubtedly, those relationships are important. Um, mm. And it's great that we're understanding more and more about that. yeah. Have you written any novels? I did, uh... And published or unpublished? Yeah, I did start a novel once. It was, um, set in, a, a, a uh, community in, um, central Australia where I lived for a few years and, um, uh, that had some interest. I, uh, but I probably uh, panicked there. Uh, There's a few publishers keen on it and, um, that I'd, you know, I'd shown, um, you know, the first half to. And then, uh... Yeah, I guess if I was to look at it uh, with a clear eye, I would say I uh, panicked on um, on that uh, finishing that off, and that's when I got the job as a um, a copywriter. I think it was. I was working. What do you mean, panic? Oh, look, it was so good. You panicked. <sighs> no, I just wanted it to be great, and rather mm. just knocking something out and then having working someone shape it into what it is. I wanted it to be perfect, mm. and you know analysis leads to paralysis, uh, the perfect is the enemy, the good, all that sort of stuff. And um, so I reckon, uh, and, you know, you have, if you have a very strong ambition, it can be corrosive. Uh, so I think you, know, you focus on one thing too heavily, it's uh, it can do you in. And, you know, the conversation around, um, I guess Indigenous issues has changed somewhat and, that you
2: know,
1: he wants to hear from a white guy about what's happening in Central Australia. So, um, but yeah, it was about, you know, a stranger in a strange land and what have you. And um, yeah, I'd, I'm not sure if I could pick that up again, but yeah, I was quite... It's unfinished. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say I've got a... I've got a you know, a full manuscript there, whether it's structurally mm. uh, sound is another, another thing. Um, but, um, yeah, you pursue other things uh, over time and I think I pursued a few things in the background to as procrastination and then some of those things took over, so... That's probably the the clearest view on what happened to that that novel. Yeah. And
0: how did you get out there? What was the impetus to you say out there for a
1: couple of years? You mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was. What was I doing? I was lost. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't lost when I was out there. I was actually strong and getting strong when I was out there yeah. uh, for a time, and then then not so much. But. Um, I went out there I was I was thinking oh, what, what am I going to do I was talking to an old man about it and I, he said oh, what are you what are you interested in I said oh, I'm interested in uh, Aboriginal art and rare books and he was like I it was a long pause and he said I don't know anything about those things um, what uh, uh, he said but I know someone that does and I, so I met someone who knew about that and um, anyway they gave me a few contacts and and uh, this is quite quite off base from the Regen journey, mate, but uh, anyway. Um, no, this is the guts of the Regen journey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. totally, So, So I uh, wrote to a few people. Uh, I ended up getting some work in um, uh, a Wildbury community and um, I went up there for uh, what I thought might be a couple of months and then um, they offered me a job and, and I ended up staying a while. Um it was probably uh, one of the most profound experiences I've had in my life. Um, you can't really say that about many things that happen in life, but I worked with first contact uh, Aboriginal people um, in the arts centre there, um, helping them produce their art and helping run the art centre and, um, and also just being in a place that was... Um, probably the most foreign place uh, i 've been, even though it 's in my own country i 've fairly widely traveled and I would say it is uh, a completely um, foreign culture that is not foreign to this country but was foreign to me and um, foreign it, to your culture yeah, so it was but you know endlessly fascinating and um, You know, anyone who spent some time in that part of the world um, experiences interesting things at every end of the spectrum and, um, you know, I took my role in the community seriously and um, uh, so I I guess it meant that I um, experienced some things that not everyone would have experienced and, um, yeah, look, it's a whole podcast really, that chapter of my life, yeah. What, when you
0: say first contact,
1: <clears throat> define that, you you literally, like, like the... Oh, like so some of the artists uh, there were, were Aboriginal men and women that had, like, literally walked out of the bush into a mission, you know, during a tough year wearing a hairstring belt, that kind of first contact. Wow. Like, completely, uh, you know, living in the Tanami um, in Northern Territory in Western Australia, uh, you know, deep into the the 20th century um, without um, contact. Like, there's wonderful, um, there's some great footage actually when they were clearing the area for the rocket range from Woormora. Oh. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of that. But
0: no, but I know that um, uh, Len... um Fidel. Fidel. Yeah. Have you heard his? Have you heard his? His thing at the and oh, oh, Isn't I, it just one of the most yeah. amazing pieces of? Well, my, sorry, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, no go for
1: I, it. I just think it's amazing. Yeah. No, Limbardel he, he spoke at my school actually um, yeah. in the like, yes. late '80s. And, yeah. And um, yeah, he had some great stories. Um, yeah. So those kinds of people, but also just being in a Walpree community where um, English is way down the list of uh, languages and then, you know, sitting in a car when, and where people actually would speak English for your benefit and you might be the only you know, English mm. speaker in the car um, and ahead of that they'd know, you know, Walpree and, um, you know, uh, Laritja and a Arunda and a b- bunch of other languages ahead of that. And, and then just seeing how that culture of uh, how that transfers into, I guess, modern life and or how it doesn't. And, um, yeah, how th- some things work and some things don't and I don't know. Never the twain shall they meet, maybe. Yeah.
0: Where was the. Because I did a road trip up there with some boys and motorbikes and yep. a Ute there some years ago. Yep. Where was the. Where was a centre? Like where was one of the, the sort of the major community centres there? Oh, uh, you or ge- Geographically. Yeah, so you and Namo,
1: about three and a half hours northwest of Alice on the Tanami. Um, the other Walprit communities up there are No to, um, uh, like Nirrupy. It's out of their country, but it's still a. Walpree well, well Place, the uh, Lajamanu, um, and then Willowra, Um Yeah, so across quite a large mm-hmm. geographical area. Um, Yundamu's probably at the southern end of their country, but there's quite a big knot of sites there, you might say, that to require cultural maintenance and, that you know, they live their culture through um, and... So it was good to, you know, after work there, I'd um, head down this track and see where this track went and then after a while you sort of fill in your mental map of how things Mm. um, um, connect. And I remember once coming across um, a cave system and, um, you know, walking up this sort of escarpment and looking over and just seeing this um, plain just covered in... Um, paintings like a, a rock surface covered in paintings, and thinking, "Oh, I'm not sure I should be here on my own." So well, I remember going back to work on the Monday, and I had a, a map, and uh, I was saying, "Oh, this is an interesting area here." To a couple of the, the old people, and um, you know, kept going on about their painting. But then, about a week later, this boat came and picked me up, and said, uh, yeah, could come come with us too." And was a manager and owner of that. Um, that uh, particular place. it was Whitey's, Whitey manager's owners or... No, 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 the... The, um, the local... The Walpree guys. Yeah. So there's, yep. you know, particular totems. Well, well, my knowledge of this has probably faded over the years, but uh, every uh, totem or site or whatever you, has someone who owns it and then someone else who's the manager of it. Um, okay, yep. And um, according to their skin name and... Um, And uh, I guess a place in the community. And um, so they took me down there and showed me this amazing place, um, a a men's site, and um, there was a few places like that around Yundamoo, both for men and women. And, um, yeah, just real... Scalp peeling stuff, really? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, well, pretty raw, like, like, you
0: know, and I guess in some ways, privileged to be.
1: Oh, look, know. absolutely, yeah. You go up there thinking, oh, I've got a job to do, and really, it's you know, it's a place of being educated in something, and um, for for you, um, you know, and then uh, yeah, I think for me, if I'd stayed up there any longer, um, yeah. I remember returning to Melbourne. It was just quite <laughs> weird. It was big, stronger culture shock returning to the city <coughs> uh, because, I, you know, I was ready for something a bit different when I went up there. And coming back, I was—you yeah, you had a different eyes on mm. how people behave in the city and what, what they do, and you know how things operate. But then you realise you got to play the game and um, to get on, really. So, yeah, different perspective. Yep.
0: Did any um, the Individuals or groups who walked in out of the desert to the camps that you know at some point walk back out again.
1: I'm uh, um, look, I'm not not sure. Um, I definitely know that there were, um, um, what would you say, people's own personal camps on their own country. So they, you know, they might be in move but they'd also go and stay out on their own country, um, and. Um, you know, occasionally I come across like you know two or three families. You know, they have Land crews and what have you, but just set up in the middle of nowhere, and, you know, riverbed or whatever. Um, so, yeah. But in terms of like returning to um, their older ways, there, you know, there's I guess if your life's about necessity, if you your life's a bit easier than uh, in one. Being in one location, you're hardly going to return to um, doing it tough in the bush. Yeah, so um, all this stuff I probably shouldn't be talking about because it hasn't been on my mind for a long time, and I my I don't have as clear thoughts on it. That oh
0: mate, that, well look, that so, that yeah. that it's you know it's as clear as it needs to be, and it doesn't you know it's not about like you know I mean it's as you remember, and it's amazing, and I'm glad that we kind of stumbled into that,
1: you know. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Uh yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, it was important for me to have spent time out there, and um, uh yeah. Look, honestly, I can't. there's things that happened out there that just like. Mind blowing stuff. So, if people ever get the opportunity to spend any real kind of time in northern Australia or central Australia or whatever, you, you should. Um, what
0: did it, um, what do you think it's, um, how how have, how have you seen the world differently since being out there? What kind of perspective that you you're happy to sort of tell us about? Not now, don't. Oh, not, not uh,
1: look, I, yeah, look, I think close to the time, this is quite a while ago, this is 20. 20 years ago, so um, 20 years ago, maybe longer, yeah, 20 years ago. Um, so the person I was after that, uh, I guess, chapter of life, I, I'm probably not that person anymore, so... Um, but I'd say an appreciation for Australia, the complexity of our Indigenous culture um, and... That we probably don't understand everything we think we understand, um, both about Australia and our place in the world. If we drift down that path, yeah, mm. yeah. So, but um, did you go back? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've been back a few times. Um, I, I sometimes I think about having a, a Northern chapter again with the, the kids and with Emma. Um, maybe coastal north or something like that, that would be pretty amazing experience um, you know, for a couple of years. Um, but at the moment, it's not, uh,
0: not on not the radar. Because yeah. um, Bruce Pascoe in his book, Dark <clears> Emia, <throat> has got a map of Australia and where the cereal grains were, uh, as I understand, cultivated across a lot of Australia, and I'm sure up there there was some, as far as he's concerned, and has researched some, dare I say, cultivation or propagation of cereal crops up there. Did you Did you have a hint of that up there when
1: you were there? Uh, no, no, there's no agriculture per se in in um, well, there, that part of the world that I'm aware of, other than what, what was in... Um, I mean, that part of the world was tonnes of agriculture. Look, there was, um, you know, beef and... Uh, that kind of thing. Why uh, agriculture? Yeah, 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 but in terms of, uh, I don't, I don't think um, the Walpri generally aligned with um, that that worldview. Yeah, um, and their, I guess their um, society was sophisticated uh, enough um, as a, I guess a hunter gatherer society with you know some permanent settlement. Um, for agriculture not to be a part of. I, I mean, I look at um, native millet, things like that. I think maybe, you know, that seems like a reasonable assumption that that was a crop at some point. But in that part of the world, the harvesting that I saw up there was uh, for pitchery, the um, um, the sort of narcotic, similar to chewing t- t- tobacco. Yeah. Um, right. And also um, a particular acacia that they used to... Cut the pitchery, and then also cut as in oh like you, it? We put in a like a, a wad, yeah. So the because of the they burn the acacia, so it was alkaline, I think, and it would help cut the active ingredient out of the pitchery and make it more accessible to hmm. your, your body. Um, yeah, what else did they have up there? They did collect um, a lot of native um, seeds and things like that. There was native fruits. Um, and you know, the bush tomatoes and bush bananas and oh God, it's hard to remember the actual names like Yapali and yeah, I, it's it's reaching into the. the right, You've done, you yeah. done well.
0: Let's fast forward to well, I don't know how fast forward we need to go, but um, you, I'm just trying to put that in some chronological kind of order there. Um, you, you said that was just before you came back, copyrighted
1: in the construction industry. You, 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 yeah, you yeah, yeah, I was up bit. there. Um, so then, yeah, returned to Melbourne, um, was writing in, I guess, professional settings rather than creative settings, doing um, technical writing and um, what have you rather than, um, you know, journalism. Uh, or, you know, some other creative pursuits. Although recently I've um, written a couple of things for Wonderground Press, which is... um, Underground Press? Wonderground Wonderground. Press, which is, uh, um, I guess, the uh, hard copy of what was formerly The Plant Hunter, the online uh, thing that Georgina Reed does out out of Sydney. Oh, yeah. And um, She she still does that, though. She does, yeah. So uh, the most recent um, issue of that I've written about Vavilov, who was a um, a Russian seed collector who first described the centres of origin, so where plants were first domesticated and spread across the earth. Right. And um, he had this sort of... That's cool. Um, yeah, he collected all sorts of things from wheat to potatoes to rhizobia ro- um, across the globe and established, um, the Vavilov, well, what's now the Vavilov Institute, the, um, the huge seed bank in, um, St. Petersburg. Um, I guess the interesting story off the back of that is, um, uh, he built this, um, repository of genetics and plant breeding and one of his, uh, protégés, um, was quite caught up in the communist ideology and had the ear of Stalin and, Said that uh, Vavilov wasn't doing things entirely aligned with communist ideology. Uh, had him put away in a gulag. Uh, was sentenced to death, and then, which was commuted to life in prison in a gulag. But of course, within a year, he died of starvation in a gulag. Um, however, his collection um, was saved um, by his fellow scientists, uh, even through this uh, siege of. Um, Leningrad, which was a multi-year siege um, where the you know, Nazis had basically surrounded Leningrad and were starving. People were uh, basically um, reduced to making bread out of sawdust and cannib- cannibalism, frankly. And um, But they knew the importance of this huge seed collection that he'd amassed um, and didn't eat it.
0: Wow. And So this, is this in your story?
1: You're, this is, this is in the
0: latest edition of Underground. So you talked uh, about this in in that in, in that yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah we'll, yeah. we'll put that in the show notes,
1: Underground yeah. Press, um, and then we'll get the link and all that sort of stuff. The issue prior to that, I wrote about um, uh, bushfire that tore through my um, uh, in-laws' place up in at Gingellic, uh up in the Murray there, Upper Murray, and ended up being that fire that um, burnt maybe a million hectares of Southeast Australia. Um, that the one, what, 2019? Yeah, so that, that would have gone through, uh, um, it was sort of a complex of fires, but the, yeah, um, the same season that, you yeah. know, we, we tore through Bruce Pascoe's place and, yeah. you know, all those coastal... A, yeah, a yeah, A mess, a real mess. Yeah. So I wrote about that as well and, um, uh, yeah, so it's been good to sort of exercise it part of my... Uh, um, Mind recently. Again, yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: So. So let's get to, let's jump to the, um, the farm. Yep. When did you move back, well, move to here because you weren't.
1: Uh, you were 2014. There. Yeah. So, long I, long, I mean, longer. I lived here
0: prior to that. Oh, okay. And
1: then 2014, um, you know, we renovated the house and so I moved in with Emma and, um, yeah, what was I doing? Some cattle here. You know, we, we, we were fattening some steers now. The, the grapes are in. Grapes are there. Yep, yeah, they've um, been there since the nineties. Um, that's been uh, Peter, my, my dad's uh, baby. Um, he still he still cares, tends to it. Yeah, that's his, still his area. Um, yeah, I've become more interested in it recently. Uh, you know, I've stuck the the vines in the ground and early on, but. Um, and, you know, I had some uh, work there, you know, when we were establishing it and then when we were at uh, the winery. But um, I really didn't pursue it with any great gusto and went and did other things, as I've said. So we came back down here. Um, I put in a couple of hectares of wheat on one of our bad paddocks um, for a few reasons, one um, wanted to Make my own bread, I wanted um, uh, I wanted to train my dog on quail and keep the quail a bit longer, so I needed some what's stubble. The, what's the dogs have you got? I've got a pointer, so mm-hmm. she's a... German short-haired. No, no, it's a pointer pointer, so I think most people probably say English pointer, but it's just a pointer. She's got <laughs> Italian genetics. Garden variety pointer. Yeah, no, it's just it's officially known as a pointer, but yeah. uh, um, there's a few um, people in Australia that import some great... Genetics from overseas with the dogs, and I, I got a great dog that was probably uh, a bit too much for a beginner like me to handle. But was that the one yeah, I can hear barking over here? Yeah, there's a truck turned up, so she's got the the, the truck bark out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I got her for for deer, and um, but she's would work too far out in front. And then I I got her onto the birds once. It's just amazing to watch the dog mm. on birds and. Um, so I got quite into that and then I thought, oh, you know, I should just, you know, the quail that we had here didn't stick around through the season. And I thought, oh, well, if I put some weed in. So there's a few things. I also read um, Dan Barber's uh, book about um, the future of food called The Third Plate. Yep. Um, and um, actually there's a chapter in that about an ethical foie gras, this bloke Eduardo de Souza, who I, I saw recently to, to tell you about. But... um. Anyway, uh, there's a, a bit in that about local food systems and um, breeding grain for flavour and nutritional value, and sort of valuing it as food rather than um, a commodity to be traded. That you know, m- much of it ends up as animal feed and whatever. Mm. Even stuff that's um, meeting, uh, I guess, um, specifications for bread often ends up in uh, down a, an animal's gullet. as, uh, I guess? Poorly designed animal feet here. Mm. Um, so, yeah, will put that in, and I guess it's been endlessly fascinated with wheat ever since. Wheat's the foundation of agriculture, really. Um, there's, a, there's much to enjoy from, I guess, a production point of view, but also um, the cultural and historical aspects of wheat. And um, and then being engaged in my local food system that sort of stemmed from that, you know, being in a community um, and essentially having a role in my local community that's stemmed from that, that really I didn't plan it or write up a business plan or anything like that. Uh, we just, I just became very interested in one specific topic and, you know, that's happened a few times in life, but... Um, get very into something um, and then, you know, a year, year and a half later you're like, oh yeah, well, what's the next thing to be interested in? But wheat's got got the lot, really, so um, Kept your attention. Yeah, yeah, and then so I've just pursued it, um Doggedly, I suppose, and um, so what does
0: that look yeah. like now? Like what, what you you started with one paddock just yeah. for your quail and the yeah. dog and a bit of bread, yeah. and then what 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 are we? What, uh, what, what so like that was how many years ago? Five.
1: Yeah, see, five or six years ago. Yeah, so then so, what are we talking about now? What it looks like what? now is that um, we grow uh, wheat here, we lease land locally. Uh, we haven't this season because I've, I've been busy with a few other things, but we we um, lease <laughs> <loose>
0: land. <laughs> Hang on, sorry, mate, Does yeah, yeah. I might need to. Yeah, he, does he need your yarn you with you? He's just like
1: going. Yeah, uh, yeah, these blokes are talking. He's turned up a bit too early, this guy. What's he got? He's te- there's some grain going down to Tassie to grow there for a baker.
2: Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnott.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode.
0: Okay, we're back on. Um, All right. We've, we've dealt with with the courier,
1: who's a little early. He's a little early, but, uh, yeah, we've got, um, we've got some growing on and at Tassie. Um, to grow, uh, yeah, around Nile there, and it's headed um, to a, a bakery in Hobart. Um,
0: cool yeah. for for baking, like for not not to be so not not for someone to sow. They're actually going
1: to turn bread No, uh, We're going to s- sow it and uh, get a couple of silos worth, and then it's to feed into a really beautiful bakery down there. Cool, uh, called Pigeonhole Bakers, who have um, and to work with a miller down there as well. Um, and um yeah, to I guess they're gonna be able to bake with something that um that offers something a bit different. Bit of a story, bit, of, bit yeah. of this,
0: bit of that, bit of flavour. But where's where's that? Where in Tassie?
1: Uh, so there, Pigeon, and I, well, the grain's going to be grown in um, Nile, just south of Evandale. Oh, so, so this grain's
0: going to get sowed, then it's going to multiply? Yep. And then, no, where's Nile? Excuse my ignorance.
1: Uh, it's just south of Evandale, which is just south of Launceston. Okay, so yeah, the 10 northern minutes sort of
0: airport, basically. Uh, of, yeah. yeah, well, Hamish
1: and I will be there doing a workshop in a month's time. Oh, it's yeah. Two it's months' time. It's a great part of the world. If if I wasn't here, it might be down there. I don't know. But it's, yeah, I love Tassie.
0: Where's the bakery? Same place. Uh,
1: the bakery is in um, Hobart. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure they'll open in Launceston in a couple of years, but, um, yeah, I, I guess it's one of the, the renowned um, <laughs> yes, artisan bakeries in Hobart. Cool. Um, it's been yeah, gratifying to meet various people in that artisan baking scene through what we're doing, and, um, yeah, a lot of the, I guess, what would you call, scene or zeitgeist or whatever is... Um, driven by uh, bakers um, who are looking for something a bit different they can offer their customers, but also to engage in a, a local food system, um, as has sort of exploded in Europe and North America again. Yeah, so. When you say
0: again, as in, like, I guess, bread used to be like, I guess, one of those um, cultural, social hubs of, of, of engagement and and, and, and profession and family and community
1: didn't it yeah absolutely I mean it's, it's very much so in parts of Europe still uh, although you know there's quite a few places that have lost their bread culture but still eat a lot of bread but yeah there'd be uh, a local um, baker or a local uh, oven and communal um, growing and milling and, and baking and you'd Bake a a large loaf of bread for the week, and um, one loaf for the week. Yeah, you could huge, huge loaves of bread. I mean, what's the the,
0: biggest loaf you've ever you've ever seen? Oh,
1: like here from our um, grain, you know, maybe a couple of kilos, so quite a large mesh, and it's
0: something. A couple of kilo loaf of uh, bread, what like looking?
1: Yeah, big big loaf of bread. You can eat it over a, a week, where you know it'll. Tastes like this at the start of the week and develop over the week. Um, you know, by the end of the week, you'd be having more toast than <laughs> um, fresh <laughs> sandwiches. But
0: that's a nice way of saying it, that it develops over the week. That get, <laughs> not in any bad way. Like if you if you if you what if it changes colour? Does
1: it go green? No, no. <laughs> you, you're only going to find that in. Um, in your poorly, urban. poorly fermented bread, yeah, in your tip top, yeah, yeah. So, well, tip top actually, tip top probably doesn't because no, it stays. That'll, that'll it lasts last for months. It'll stay soft and uh it'll be golden for months. Yeah, it <laughs> must be really good stuff. Though. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, we're we're just aiming at the three ingredient bread here. So, just to... so what's that? What, that's flour, water, yeast. Not yeast no yeah, I mean, you know, so flour water salt and salt. I, I guess the part the flour in the water is also the lavon or the sourdough um, that's uh, floating around in the air and if you oh, yeah. um, develop a, a sourdough starter or a, a mother or a madre? Or I should ask Tom more about this than, than me. It's more his expertise. Tom
0: floating around in the background. We saw him yeah. around his he's, he's at the he's at the bench.
1: He's, he's preparing. He needing, uh, what's he needing in there? He's he's probably laying out um, loaves for tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're resting on the bench, and then he'll put them um, in uh, the fridge overnight for a long. Ferment and then they'll go in the oven in the morning and then people can pick up the bread
0: in the morning. From So you're open, give it a plug, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Yeah,
1: Thursday thing? to Sunday, Sunday. Uh, from 8pm. Uh, um, so people literally till, drive up here? we're sold out. Yeah, you can drive up here. Park? We've got various outlets on the peninsula. Um, so I guess Torello Farm, uh, Tully's, um, cellar and Pantry, and also other... Restaurants and um, people coming on board. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Is um, it,
0: um are you do you turn up? You here on a Sunday morning in your apron on the on the retail doing the hospos? Depends. Saying, what, depends what, what else I mean, be me? Cotto's in the house.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> we, That's what people want to see. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we look. We've. Literally, only opened six weeks ago, and I was away for much of that. So uh, I, I think um, we we're just talking about that this morning, having a bit more of a retail presence. And mm. So, yeah, I will get out the apron and um, be talking to talk. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm conscious of time. you got the chronometer? What's the time? Uh, yeah.
0: Because I just want to make sure we're squeezing a couple before. We might have to do our Q&A later at 17. And
1: yeah, we'll, if we if we... Another twenty
0: minutes. Yeah, cool. Okay, lovely. That's, that should be plenty. Yeah. Tell me, um, so ancient grains. Define an ancient grain because there's lots of talk of ancient grains, and as you're sort of alluding to before, there's a resurgence in baking, uh, which I think is wonderful. Um, and heirloom ancient grains. What, what's the difference, and in, in, you yeah. know, from say modern day wheat varieties?
1: So when I think of ancient grains, I, I think of grains that are from an unimproved era that aren't uh, really common wheat. So things like um, spelt, um, emma, iron corn, probably spelt less so, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, emma, iron corn, maybe things like corazon. And then the other sort of genetic oddities in the triticum family of grasses that uh, haven't been improved at all. Um, That's what I would term ancient grains. Uh, When you think of heirloom wheats or heritage wheats, uh, I would think of a few different things there. I'd think of things, say, prior to 1910, so just the very start of actual uh, plant breeding. Uh, So I'd think of common wheats that were either land races, so that were just lines that people grew locally that they collected, often genetic diversity within those lines. And then after, say, 1910, uh, well, 1900, I guess, up until the um, Green Revolution, so, uh, say, 1960, you know, the 60s and the introduction of um, high-yielding semi-dwarfing genetics, I would think of that period as heritage wheat as well, so... um, Breeding uh, for like rust resistance and yield and other functional qualities was well underway from then um, and not just relying on what genetics were available locally. Um, and people were adapting um, lines and genetics to their location. And then from, uh, I guess, 1960 onwards, where semi dwarfing high-yielding genetics started to dominate um, what was grown um, and I guess through to the modern era that's what modern wheat is now so the last you know, 50, 60 years um, the focus has been on uh, high yields um, functionality in a high speed bakery and, um, and also things like rust resistance so it's just amazing work's done on disease resistances um, I guess when you think of the green revolution it goes with a lot of other things that um, a lot of people find less appealing so um, but like if, what well if you think of um, that era with the introduction of um, wide wide usage of fertiliser mechanisation um, and high yielding genetics it was focused on yield Um, there's nothing wrong with any of that it's it's all great it's just what has developed around that um, in terms of our food systems so uh, rather than sort of dig too hard down that rabbit hole I guess I'd rather talk about um, uh, the mindset of what we're producing being commodity that's traded that hits a for certain quality benchmarks, but not kind of really considering that it's food that people eat. And if you're hitting, you know, the three key marks in plant breeding of, uh, for wheat breeding of um, yield, disease resistance and um, functionality um, according to end use, you've got to hit all those things. But perhaps we can also hit things like nutritional value, ease of digestion flavor even and also suitability for a low input system or earlier sowing or there's a bunch of things and i honestly think that we're going through a great resurgence in diversifying genetics and people's approach to plant breeding and what people are after and i'm kind of optimistic about this part of agriculture um generally Um, But in terms of our collection of wheat here, we've collected a variety of wheats over the last uh, five years, both from gene banks and um, other collections globally. We've imported lots of different things through quarantine um, that uh, starting from very small amounts that we've bulked up and we've found things that are, for one, suited to our uh, growing climate here well outside the wheat belt. So it's a high rainfall zone here. Um, with a season distinct from other uh, wheat-growing regions in Australia. So finding something that's suited to here, but it can also handle disease load. Um, yield's important, but not not the only thing for us because we add value by turning into flour and bread. Um, and from those things, we've, I guess, trying to restore wheat as a key ingredient that offers more than... Uh, Packer. Yeah. So um so looking at flavour, nutrition, ease of digestion, those things. Um and it's not necessarily older is better. in fact there's plenty of old wheats that are terrible for digestion and don't offer you much, or they've got in analysis they might have all the components of uh high nutrition, but they also have antagonists to digestion that stop you absorbing it. So um there's plenty of modern wheats that actually really, you know, you can digest really well and offer a lot for you. But So it's wading through old and new to find things that um, are good as food. Um, and also, from a business point of view, that's distinct from what else is available. So um, I'm very interested in um, hard red wheats, uh, milling wheats um, that have genes that can handle, uh, like, Um, they don't pre-harvest sprout, they can handle late rain things like that and while maintaining their quality it's not something we've typically focused on in Australia Um, I'm also interested in population wheats, so a lot of genetic diversity within one field Um, if you've got that genetic diversity in there you can handle um, rusts um, and what have you it doesn't spread as easy um, frosts, things like that And if you've got that diversity in there, um, you end up with, uh, I guess, stable yield across the years um, rather than sort of a boom and bust cycle. You, um, you know, you end up doing quite well every year instead of, uh, you know, fantastic one year and poor the next. And so I'm interested in that as well. And just general diversity, but just having looked at globally um, what's happening both at the big end and small end of the grain world. uh, I'm quite optimistic about diversity in in general. Um, I'd say Western Europe probably needs to look at increasing their diversity, but Eastern Europe certainly has, um, you know, in the last few decades. Um, And, you know, of course, generally, the consumer values have become more and more important to... um, uh, having a viable business and um, I guess the consumer's interested in difference and all these other issues I've been talking about.
0: Just going back to my last tricks before, Jason, yeah. you said that, you know, when you sort of, when you were here, you know, you, you sort of did, you were farming to sort of suit the environment as opposed to kind of imposing ideas and going, I'm going to make you work. It strikes me that, you know, w- growing wheat down here. I mean who else is who else has grown wheat down here in the last thirty years uh well in the last few years a few people just No, like, over no, the last yeah. thirty like like before yeah. you when i'm I need wheat from a quail and yeah. a couple of bits of
1: well sourdough. like I'm, it, it I mean, I'm not sure if people had grown wheat it was it wasn't taken to harvest it would have been just for um for fodder, um,
0: well, I guess that's my point. So yeah. you, you thought yeah. that was a good idea, and it clearly has been a good idea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so, but, but that, that's that was that was kind of not looking at the at the at the canvas and going, oh, this is what other people are doing. This is suitable. This is normal. In Mornington, I'm going to undo it. Yeah. It's quite a departure from that. It.
1: it is um, you and your I mean, you and your dog. We blame the dog. Yeah, we can blame the dog. Yeah. Look, I think it's just a moment in time. Uh, where it was possible. Um, you know, the smaller land holdings down here. The value of land is crazy down here. Like, just phenomenal. Um, so if you drew up a business plan, you wouldn't do it. But there's this sort of... Um, From a return on investment point of view. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, clearly we're getting return on investment now, but I think it's just because people became invis- interested in localised food systems And there was also uh, a resurgent interest in um, bakers, millers, farmers, breeders, consumers, all having direct relationships. So it's something, it's a movement that's been happening globally. And I just happened to grow wheat as that was happening. And then there was people who were interested in engaging directly with us, whether they were bakers or... um, Uh, or otherwise, in sourcing a local ingredient that was identity preserved um, and they knew where it was from, they could see how it was grown and also just generally have a relationship with produce before it got to their bakery. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people are largely, not largely, but often really detached from the natural world and in the last I don't know, how, how many decades, people seem to attach to the natural world through their food system and, uh, you know, you look at that when you, on menus, the, the you know exacting specificity of where something's from, the variety it is, where it was grown, how it was grown. People crave that sort of connection to the natural world through food and I think it's an extension of that. Um And then also looking at supply chains, um, there's just a huge interest in having local supply of something, um, whether that's um, uh, wheat or honey or what have you. If people can connect with, you know, provenance in some way, it's important if you live in that local area um, to feel connected to the place you're in. Um, But it generally also offers... Something else um, that's you know you, you can 't generally find it um, um, in a supermarket um, with flour that comes from wherever that 's a mix of this and that and you know it was milled two thousand kilometers away and you know um, has no life left in it because it's it's old or what have you so it, I guess a specific example of that was during the uh, first year of the pandemic there was a, f- a few months there where It was hard to find flour on supermarket Mm. shelves. So we were just going gangbusters. People sought us out, not because they wanted to engage with the local food system, but because they couldn't find flour anywhere else. And it just proved to me that it's necessary to have sort of multi-levels of supply, whether that's local or domestic or international. You've got to have all those things humming um, to have any sense of uh, food security, um... And, yeah, so I guess our business has grown from just um, having done something at the right time through serendipity or what have you, yeah, so... But but
0: I guess you know you did do that because you didn't have to do that. I mean, it might have been just a sort of a fickle moment to go I'll whack some weed in and with my dog and my and my bread. But yeah, no, You know, to, to have pursued yeah. that though, you know, like and before yeah. before you know that actually that 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 surge that movement because you know you were probably three years in front of the curve there. Yeah. So that's um, look. I'll, you know, it, it's hard yeah. right to pump your own tires up, a
1: bit mate. I think from. Um for me, uh look I'm not the greatest farmer in the world. Um the production side of it is is quite um time consuming but very engaging as as well. It's it's just multifaceted, but I, I just got very interested in um diversity of genetics and that has probably kept me going and exploring different threads. Um so yeah, I, and now that we've we've sort of grown in a, a way that's distinct from what else is available, and I guess that the basis of that is I had a bit of a collector's bent. I like collecting things, and then I was like, oh, I'll collect wheats, and then all of a sudden I had amassed a huge collection of weeds, and it was I was meeting you know really interesting people, and know um, not only locally in sort of community food point of view, but uh, globally people interested in um, what, what I was doing and who had been doing it for longer or what have you and just met a bunch of characters, really. So uh, that kind of thing really can sustain you for years because you, you have a business that you're interested in that you want to be doing, but also you, it's constantly being renewed by um, various people you meet and I guess the agriculturists generally like that in whatever field of agriculture you're in. That it's, you know, there's endless um, innovations or directions or people you can meet that um, may, you know, means it's constantly inspiring and um, that draws you on. Yeah. So.
0: Mate, um, I'm conscious of the time. It's just gone 20 minutes into our second session here. Yep. Um, you have to get your, your ass somewhere else. Yep. Um, though, I think it's a really good spot to finish. Um, there may be another opportunity to catch up to do our Q and A for our Patreon members. So, if yep. you're not a Patreon member, sign up. Yep. get on board. CharlieAlbert.com.au. Ten bucks a month to get transcripts, to get Q and As. We're even doing a. We're even. A, we just. I had a brainwave this morning about something else we want to do for the Patreon members, which should excite them no end. So, by the time this comes out in the world, um, that will be in tr- That'll be a thing. Um, so we'll catch up another time. And, mate, that's been, that's been fascinating. I love it. I mean, you know, I love that, you know, coming here on your farm, talking, you know, I knew we were going to talk about wheats and and so on, given that's the the obvious thing we're going to talk about. But we went other places, which is awesome. And that's what I love about, you know, people and and yarning and, and conversations and exploring and dancing with the conversation, which I think we did. Yeah, absolutely. You're a good dancer, mate. Oh, yeah,
1: there was a lot to talk about there. We probably uh, could have have carried on yeah we could no,
0: have you know, that's fine no we'll, look we'll yeah. we'll um we'll we'll catch up another time we do have um a monthly webinar for our patreon members that um i'll definitely be um getting back in touch with you about being on um another time another, yep. in a month you know you know, in in not next month but in a, you know you know you're one of our monthly ones and um mate you get going been lovely to chat it has
1: thanks so Jason. much for having me on and um The last couple of days as well, enjoyed
0: it. Oh, we didn't even talk about the biodynamic workshop, mate. We didn't. Jesus, anyway, we're going to be give you. We're going to keep a close eye on you and your activities here. Hamish will at least. Okay, the spirit of Hamish will be lurking around every
1: corner. I'm going to. I'll give it a crack, and I'll let you know the results. Get on, you mate. All right.
0: And next week on the Regenerative Journey, my guests are Dave and Bianca from Our Cow, starting from very humble beginnings um, on their own little farm and, and. Dealing with with some trying circumstances, drought and, and so on, financial pressure, uh, they did a complete um, uh, pivot and looked at uh, different ways of of, um, of utilising their skills and doing a fine job and now have uh, running the proprietors, the, the founders of Our Cow, um, amazing you know, grass-fed meat was beef and they're turning their hand to other, other meats as well. Um, it's a big operation. They've done so well. Really proud of these two young uh, young couple and they're on next week the regenerative journey.
2: This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnott.com.au.